Well, good morning. Um, my name's Luke. I met many of you, but uh, if you don't know me, uh, I'm in the house church with these fine folks over here, and I uh, really love being a part of this church. And uh, last summer, Brian asked me to, uh, to talk, and then again this summer, kind of in the uh, theme that we have uh, sharing, you know, we have multiple people that have come up and talked through Psalms, and um, so I'm really excited to be here and talk with you about it, but I'm also like really nervous about that too. And uh, I was talking with Brian and told him that part of my fear, I do a lot, actually a lot of public speaking with my job, but part of my fear at talking with church is I don't really feel sometimes like I'm qualified to do it. Um, I'm a Christian, so that's a qualification, I guess, but I'm certainly not a perfect Christian, and I'm not a perfect person, and I'm also not uh, what I would say, you know, a, a real scholar of the Bible, but I do care very much about what the Bible says, and I care even more that um, we hear God's Word regularly, and we hear truth um, from God's Word, and more important than that, that we hear the gospel. And so that's, that's my hope for this morning, is that I'm able to speak the truth of God's Word to you, um, and I'm going to do as much of that just reading Scripture as I can, because that's really the best source, that's the best way. Um, but some of the things I'm going to say up here are what I'm interpreting from the Scripture too. And so um, real quick before we get into that, I'm just going to pray that God kind of guides my, my words and guides my heart and guides my mind. Um, that the things that you hear today are what he wants you to hear. Um, so, Lord, I just pray uh, this morning that you will give me strength and conviction and that your truth will come from my mouth, that the scripture that we're hearing today will have a purpose in the hearts of people that are hearing it. Um, I pray that the word confession will have a new meaning uh, after our, we hear um, this sermon this morning, and that it'll become something that is a part of our everyday life if it isn't already. And Lord, I especially pray that if there are people hearing this message for the first time, um, hearing what it means to become aware of sin and to confess that we can't deal with it, Lord, I pray that you will put something on their heart today um, that makes them willing to confess today, to accept Jesus Christ. Um, to find communion with other believers and to begin to know more about you and, and the freedom that's, that's in you. We pray these things in your name. All right, so I get the privilege of talking about Psalms 32, and when Brian asked me if I wanted to share something and what I would like to share from, this kind of came to mind as I was thinking about it a little bit. Uh, but mainly because it's something that I've struggled with. And it's, uh, so I, I'm not talking, again, from a position of being an expert or an authority or even somebody that practices what I'm about to talk about well. But it's interesting to me because I think it's something that's really vital to being a healthy Christian, and it's actually vital to becoming a Christian too. Um, so I'm going to just read through Psalms 32 here, and this is the Psalm of David. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confess my sin to you. 
and stop trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All of my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with the songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad. All you who obey him, shout for joy. For those, uh, for, uh, shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. This psalm just has so many uh, really important points. And I think what spoke to me most about it is it addresses the destructive and horrible process of trying to hide from God, which is not possible to begin with. But it's so easy to become tricked into thinking that we can hide from God or that we can keep something from God. And David just puts into such elegant words the contrast between being in a state of confession about his sin and being in a state of not confessing his sin. And so I kind of just took the verse and kind of split it in, uh, into this confessed, the confessed side and the non-confessing side. So I'm just going to kind of read some of the descriptions uh, that he says. So when he has confessed his sin, there's joy. Uh, he's forget, for, forgiven of disobedience. Sin is put out of sight. He's cleared of guilt. He lives a life of honesty. There's salvation from the floodwaters of judgment. And in a relationship with God, he has protection. He's surrounded by songs of victory. He has a hiding place. He has a guide to the best pathway for his life. He is an advisor. He has an unfailing love from God. And he knows that God watches over him and when he's confessed his sin. And when he's unconfessed, uh, his body's wasting away. He's groaning day and night. He's under the hand of discipline, a heavy hand of discipline. His strength is gone. He's senseless like a horse or a mule that has to have a bit and bridle to be led. Um, and that implies that he's being forced in a direction, um, being kind of yanked or directed to go somewhere that he doesn't want to go. Um, to me, that's really powerful because I got to be honest, that first half of, uh, you know, the confessed half, I don't really feel that way very much. Uh, in fact, I would say probably the majority of my Christian life, I feel more like he describes himself when he was kind of not confessing his sins to the Lord. And I feel exhausted a lot. I feel beat down. I feel like I'm failing. I have a lot of guilt, actually, um, you know, that I'm not perfect, that I'm letting the Lord down, that I'm letting my family down, that I'm letting my friends down, um, that I'm going to, you know, be exposed as a fraud, I guess I would say. That's something that's in the back of my mind a lot. And I think, I think it's a normal human experience, and, but it's put there because it's not what we're supposed to have. And so that's, it's, a, it's a draw that God puts into our lives. It's something that catalyzes an understanding that we are sinful and that we're not as we should be. 
and that drives us to seek him. And I think that's kind of, I mean, basically what David's laying out here is his process of going from being uh, an unbeliever or unreconciled with God to being a believer and reconciled with God. So that's the one half of it. But the other half is, I think this could very well describe a continual process that's happened after he's been saved. Um, it's not just a process that happens as he accepts you know, his salvation and then it's over, but it's a process that also maybe could continue happening uh, as he's growing you know, more and understanding God more. And so that's kind of what I wanted to, to focus on today is actually confession and the role that it has when we're first becoming Christians and then the role that it has as we are kind of maturing in Christ and trying to become more like him. So before we get into that, I wanted to kind of give a brief history of confession. Uh, And again, not going to be exhaustive, uh, but it will give kind of a snapshot. Um, And it was actually kind of humorous as I was kind of reading through this, and I had the thought of, well, I wonder where the Bible first talks about confession. Like, what, what, who was the first person to confess something? Uh, and so, you know, immediately thinking, well, the first people were Adam and Eve. Let's, um, and so go to Genesis to start reading through that. And so I'm just going to read from Genesis 3. Um, this is just a great window into one of the things that we suffer from. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked, woman, did God really say to you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It is only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. The serpent said, you won't die. God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced, saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it could give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some, of the fruit, uh, gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So right here we have kind of the quote-unquote original sin, um, but it's the first time where a human uh, diverges from God's perfect will for them. And Eve first eats of the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil, and then Adam follows her lead and eats as well. And immediately they become aware of their nakedness. And I I don't know about you, but... That's always kind of just seemed like a strange thing for, I mean, I guess I understand that process. It would be embarrassing to be without clothes on, but it seems like I've always known that or ever since a very, very young age. And so having these two adults suddenly become aware of the fact that they didn't have any clothes on um, is, is interesting. And the first instinct that they have is not to be like, oh, we don't have clothes on. It's to feel guilty and ashamed. So the knowledge of good and evil um, imparts shame and guilt on them instantly. And another thing I hadn't really considered is God told them, if you eat of this tree, you're going to die. And Satan says, or the serpent says, uh, 
no, you won't die. And they ate of the tree, and they didn't drop dead at that very moment, right? Um, we know that they went on to have a limited life, and so their bodies died. But one of the things on a commentary as I was reading about this brought up the point that there's kind of two lives that humans have. There's our physical body and there's our spiritual life and body. And prior to them eating this fruit, they were in communion with God. Their spiritual body was being sustained by God and in communion with God as well as their physical body in the Garden of Eden. And when they ate of that tree, there was a rift that kind of happened at that moment. And in a sense, they died spiritually. They came out from underneath the protection of God and assumed protection for themselves, and in doing so, took on a hopeless battle, something they could never win. Um, they could never be perfect like God was perfect. Um, they couldn't handle that knowledge of good and evil without sinning. And uh, so, so they, they're, they're struggling, they are ashamed, they are sewing fig leaves together just to cover their bodies, and then God comes to find them, and he asks, where are you? And that always seems strange to me, too. It's like, well, of course God knows where they're at. They're in the garden. He probably knows exactly what bush they were hiding behind or they had just used to sew up their fig, you know, fig leaf clothing. Why does he ask, where are you? And, and the answer is because he wasn't really concerned about their physical location, I don't think, and this is just my interpretation, but he was concerned about their spiritual location. Like, they were not in communion with him anymore. They were not... Uh, one with his will for them anymore, and he was worried about that. And so he kind of comes up on them, and, and, what, and Adam says, I heard your footsteps in the garden, and I was afraid. And this is probably the first time that Adam has felt fear in regards to God. It's like a novel thing for him, something he hasn't had before. And God basically asked them, well, what has happened? And that is the process that God does for all of us. He asks us, what has happened? And it elicits a confession on our part. But there's like a lot of different kinds of confession. There's confession that can be uh, something that you're using to avoid, you know, a truth that you don't want. So you can confess to the lesser sin. Uh, you can confess a partial truth. You can, uh, you know, lie, uh, which isn't a confession at all or is a false confession. Um, or you can confess fully and Full confession is something that is really special, and I'm going to talk about like what a full confession actually is and what it means. Um, but this is the first confession. I'm just going to read it to you uh, in the Bible. It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. That's the first confession. Not a very good one, probably. Uh, you know, that's uh, it's kind of one of those uh, scapegoat situations. Not my fault. It was that lady, and it was you. That, that's, that's who's to blame for what's happened here. Uh, and God then asks Eve, what have you done? And I'd, I'd say she gets a little bit closer to a, a real confession here. Um, she says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate the fruit, basically. And so she gets a little bit closer to saying, I committed a wrong. Uh, Adam basically says, I just did what I was told to do, basically. Uh, you know, no blame here. Uh, but she says, I was deceived. And so she admits that she made an error, that she uh, fell prey to the serpent's deceit. 
And the serpent's deceit actually was because he also spoke truth in a sense. Uh, and when he said, you won't die, that was actually true at that moment about her physical body. She didn't perish at that moment. Um, and so Satan oftentimes will use those kind of partial truths to trick us or to get us hooked in and into thinking about something. But always at the core of that is going to be a disobedience to God's law or God's word. Um, but she, so she says, yeah, I was deceived. The serpent deceived me and I ate the fruit. And kind of following that, God describes the consequences of that action. And that, but in the same exact statement that he's telling them about kind of basically how terrible things are going to be going forward from here because of their sin, he also gives the hope of Christ. And he talks that basically Eve will bear children and her children will fight the serpent and eventually crush its head even as the serpent is biting their heel. Um, and that woman will struggle with childbirth uh, birth and pain from that and wanting to control, uh, uh, to rule over her husband, but in return her husband will rule over her and that her husband will struggle uh, to get food from the ground, and he'll be, you know, basically fighting for his existence uh, going forward. And this addresses um, this addresses the physical ramifications of that sin. So it talks about nutrition and childbearing and death um, and suffering, and but it doesn't necessarily address specifically the, the spiritual part of it. But through Eve's confession, and I think honestly that, that she, and again, this is, this is just the scripture, this is just my interpretation, but I think she owned a little bit more of the responsibility um, than Adam did. And it, I don't think it's a coincidence that it was through Eve that the salvation um, from that spiritual death um, the coming of Jesus Christ and the reconciling of all of us with, with God happened through woman. Um, and I think partly it was because of her genuineness in, in confessing this and, and being open about what happened um, and taking some responsibility for that. If we skip forward a little bit to Leviticus um, 5, um, 5 and 6, let me just go there. Basically, uh, um, it says that it talks about the various sins that the Israelites could commit and then what was needed to atone for those sins. And, uh, but it kind of sums all that up and it says, when an Israelite basically became aware of their guilt because of sin, and so again, guilt is a, is a marker, it's a herald to when we're in sin, when we're living in sin. When they became aware of that, an offering was to be brought to the priest who would purify the guilty through the process of sacrificing the offering um, to the Lord. And I think this, is, this act of confession, I don't know about you all, but I've had a lot of conflicting thoughts, feelings about it. When I hear confession, the first thing I think of is like a little box at the side where there's a priest in here taking your confession and telling you that you're absolved of, you know, of your sin, if you know, you Hail Marys or you do this action or you do this thing. And, and that's kind of like a Catholic uh, principle, and I wouldn't want to speak for all Catholics or I wouldn't want to speak for, you know, all Christians, but I think that 
what I believe to be true is that a priest, a person, is never the means by which we're absolved of sin. I think that God can use people, um, can use a pastor, can use a priest to facilitate um, understanding of our guilt and need for um, salvation and need for, for mercy and grace. But I don't think it's ever a person uh, other than Jesus, other than God, who absolves us of our sin. And there's no other way to seek absolution of our sin other than going through Christ. Um, that is our only way. Even the sacrifices that they made were not perfect. They were not enough to satisfy every sin that we had. There are sins that are described in, in Leviticus and other places. There are basically sins that people committed not having even known it was a sin. Um, and they would just go sacrifice an animal anyway, just in hopes that they would cover whatever sin it was that they hadn't you know, remembered or hadn't recognized that they did. And so it was really a hopeless situation. There was never a perfect sacrifice until Christ came. But Christ was a perfect sacrifice, and he covered all of our sins. So that's the other thing. When we have that salvation, when we enter there to God's presence and we say, Lord, you are sovereign, I'm a sinner, and I need forgiveness for my sin, that's a confession. It is a one-time thing. And from that point, our sins from the past are forgiven. Our sins that we're committing in the present are forgiven. And our sins that, we've, that we're going to commit in the future are forgiven because we are become a new creation. We are dead to ourself, uh, our, you know, our sinful nature. Um, those things are no longer what God sees when he looks at us. He sees Christ. And so that confession is kind of like the confession, if you will, um, that we are not in control, that we're sinners, that we can't save ourselves. Um, but then uh, there's a process that happens because even after we've confessed our sins and we've, and we've repented and we want to change, um, we still do wrong things and we still sin. Before Christ came, that required a continual process of sacrifice. Um, animals had to take the atonement for that sin. There was a price to pay for those sins. And you were wiped clean by your sacrifice, and then if you went out and became unclean by touching the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing, you had to go back through, and you had to you know, go back through that process uh, to become pure again. Um, and that was a, actually like a, really, it was a real burden. It was a, their whole society was centered around this process of trying to remain pure and clean um, a whole set of laws, very, very strict laws were in place. And of course, most people, maybe even all people, couldn't really fulfill those laws. So we were constantly living in a state um, where we were condemned. Um, numbers 5, uh, also 5 through 7, so real close in the same location in Numbers, it talks about more than just uh, needing to sacrifice when we are guilt, guilty ridden by sin. It also talks about um, restitution. And this is in reference to when we sin against other people as well. Because we can sin against God, and, and all sin is against God. It's an affront to God. But some sin also involves other people, and when we've hurt other people. And so it introduces a concept that not only should we be confessing our sin to the Lord, but if we've wronged somebody, um, maybe we should be confessing to them as well that we've wronged them, and even going further than that, trying to 
make a restitution if possible. Because, again, there's, the product of sin is not just uh, a spiritual um, suffering, but there's a physical suffering that goes along with that. And sometimes it's not just in our lives, but it's in the lives of the people that we've affected um, by our sin. And taking it a little bit further, so this is kind of the Old Testament uh, law. In Matthew, and we've talked, you know, this verse comes up a lot here, but um, I'll just repeat it again. In 5.17, basically Jesus says that he's come to fulfill the law of Moses and the prophets, not to abolish it. Um, And what he means by that is he is, there's still a sacrifice needed. There still has to be a atonement for the sin that we've, that we've, uh, you know, created or that we've done. And he is offering himself as that sacrifice. But his sacrifice is a lot different than the sheep or the goat or the ram or the pigeons or whoever that they um, had to sacrifice because it is an all-encompassing. His blood was sufficient for all sins, all people, all times. And Luke 19 is, I love the story of Zacchaeus. I know we've all heard of, uh, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. But he goes to Jesus, um, or he's trying to see Jesus as Jesus is kind of talking to a crowd or walking down a road, but he's too short and he can't see. So he climbs up to a fig tree and he sees Jesus and Jesus sees him and he says, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I'm coming to your house tonight for dinner. And all the people were really upset by this because he was a tax collector and he also was kind of cheating them, overtaxing them and kind of using the taxes as a benefit for him. He was getting rich off of this. But Jesus said, I'm going to come to your house. And through the process of having a meal with Jesus, Zacchaeus has a complete kind of change of heart. And he says, I'm going to give half of my wealth to the poor. And not only am I going to give half my wealth to the poor, but I'm going to find those people that I cheated or that I, you know, took more money than I should have, and I'm going to give back to them four times what I, what I took from them. And so he has this, this change. And then Jesus tells him that surely salvation has come to your house this day. And that's an interesting thing to me. Because while I firmly believe that the most important thing any person can hear from me today is that we are covered by grace. Um, I think it was a couple Sundays ago, I think it was Keith or, or someone that had kind of talked about the fact that grace is evidence also by what we do with it and what we do because of it. And Jesus recognizes Zacchaeus' change of heart. I don't think it matters how much money he gave or who he gave it to necessarily. But what happened in Zacchaeus' heart was he came to grips, really truly came to grips with something that was keeping him mired in guilt and feeling inferior to everyone around him and alienating him from people around him. And he came to grips with that truly and understood that it was grieving God. And he also believed that Jesus was God. Um, and that he could be saved from this. And because of that, he had a real change in his perspective and what he was doing for other people. And he put that into practice. So part of confessing is repentance. So we become aware, genuinely aware, and like, uh, like David says, 
Um, Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. And it's not just saying I'm a sinner, but it's dropping all of the false face that we put up about sin. As saying, I truly am a sinner. I have no excuse. Not minimizing it, not making it less than, not only telling the least sin so that it seems a little bit better uh, or something like that, but really acknowledging the, the fullness of our shortcoming. And it, it takes humility to do that. It takes a lot of humility to do that. Uh, so Zacchaeus it kind of is an example of this process kind of happening. And, and Jesus really honors him in saying that there's salvation that's coming to his house. And that's, that's like a, uh, you know, I would love to hear Jesus say that about my house. Um, that would be a really fulfilling thing. But, it come, but the manifestation in that statement that salvation has come to his house is after the evidence of his repentance and his, you know, and his promise to do that. So there's repentance. And repentance says, I've done something wrong. I admit that. That's a confession. And I'm going to change my way and do something different for the future. So repentance, though, that can be where we can stop too. Um, it doesn't always go on from there. Um, and if we look at Psalm 32 again, David kind of describes what the person who is living a fully confessed life looks like. They have joy because their dis- disobedience is forgotten. Sin is put out of sight. There's no record against them, so they don't have guilt from that. And they live lives in complete honesty. I don't know about you, but my life is not lived in complete honesty. I, I just can't even, I, I, I'm sure, actually, I think there's a movie, I can't remember which one it's about, where somebody can't tell a lie. Uh, you know, and it just is about the train wreck that a full, you know, comes out of the truth that, I think Jim Carrey or somebody like that, that he's speaking to everybody, and it's just horrible stuff, you know, because he's got a bunch of stuff that he's thinking about people that are really not good, and he just says it all. Uh, and so that is like, a, that's a perfect example of, you know, what my mind goes to when I think about being, living lives of complete um, honesty. But I don't think that's exactly what he means there. What he means there is that the intention of our heart at any given moment as we're talking to somebody is to speak honestly to them, to tell them truthfully where are we, um, to tell them truthfully that we're, sin, that we're sinners, to tell them truthfully that our salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone, and that we can't do it on our own. And that is the works that comes out of full repentance. Um, it's that level of honesty. And I love that we have a microphone up here. It gives people an avenue to, uh, to say things honestly to us. Their struggles, their fears, um, their joys, the things that God is doing in their life. And one of the things that I, I know sometimes makes me nervous because there's a microphone up here too is what happens if someone comes up and says something that embarrasses me or that makes me feel awkward? And it's such a selfish way to think about that. But the reality is I've been here for, you know, I don't know, a year and a half, two years now, and I have not one time had an experience where someone has come up to this microphone where I've left that thinking, oh my gosh, I really wish they hadn't done that. And it's because God uses people's genuine willingness to be honest and to talk with other people um, and to share what's going on with them in a really powerful way. 
And even if the words aren't quite right, or even if, you know, it's something that I don't understand, it's not so much what was said that counts. It's when someone comes up here and is willing to be vulnerable and to open up and to say something that, you know, I might even have a, you know, a hard time coming up and doing. I have a hard time doing this. Uh, it's that willingness. It's a testament to what God's doing. It's, he's filling them. He's forgiving them. He's motivating them to the point where they can't sit still and not say something. They have to come up and say it. And I love that. I think that is what the true purpose of kind of being in a confessed state, the true purpose of honesty is, is it's a witness to the gospel, to the effects of the gospel in our lives. Um, kind of the last little bit in this, this history is in, uh, is in Luke 23, and it's uh, addressing the, one of the criminals that dies next to Jesus. Um, I'm just going to read that. So it's 2340. But the other criminal, so the first criminal is basically mocking Jesus. But the other criminal uh, protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to death? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. And we read this not too long ago in our house church, and I can't even remember the purpose that we were even around the scripture, but it totally revolutionized something in my mind about what it means to confess our sin. Because I'm thinking like, okay, we need to pray the Lord's, you know, the Lord's Prayer, and we need to make sure we cover all the different topics and that we've, you know, hit uh, fully confessing and repenting and all the things that we're going to do, and then we need to, and then when all those things are done, you know, we're, then we can be assured of our salvation. But if you look at what this exchange was from this criminal here, he basically confesses two things. That God is real and that he deserves death, that he's a sinner. And then he asks Jesus to remember him. I, so he confesses two things and then he asks for forgiveness. And that is all that it took for Jesus to say, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. And if that, that, that's just mind-blowing to me. That's the simplicity of what God offers to us. It just takes a simple confession. We're sinners. You're God. We need you to save us. And as I say that, there might be somebody here today who hasn't confessed their sin, who hasn't recognized that that's where they are right now that they're living in that, and that they're not accepting Jesus. And so I just want to invite you, um, you know, before we're done, done with church today or after we're done with church, if you want to find me or there's lots of other people here that would love to talk with you, pretty much anybody I think you walk up to will either talk with you or know someone that will. Um, I would invite you to ask me about what that process is and what it's meant for my life. Um, so please hold on to that. And when we kind of get to the end here, I'm going to invite anybody that wants to, if you want to come up and talk with me here, um, we can go out to the hallway, whatever. Um, but I want to make sure that you don't leave here without that opportunity and, and the understanding that I'm willing to, to go there with you. 
I just have a couple other quick things I wanted to say about confession. Um, and this is more speaking to not our original confession when we're saved, but kind of what does confession look like after we've already been saved? And do we really need to be continuing to do that? Um, the uh, Before Christ, yes, we had to do that, and we explained why, because there was not a perfect atonement for our sin. But after Christ, there has been a perfect atonement. So we're no longer seen as sinners in front of God. We're seen under the auspices of Jesus Christ, and so we're free from that. So if that's where we're at, do we need to keep saying we've sinned? And I think the answer is yes, we do. And one of the places that I kind of get that idea from is in uh, James 5.16. So I'm going to read that for you here. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power to produce wonderful results. So that talks about yet a third type of confession. It's not a confession just to God. It's not a confession to someone that you've wronged who you need to acknowledge that that wrong or even make restitution for that wrong but it's confessing to somebody that's another fellow believer, a righteous person. And for the reason that they can pray for your healing. And being part of a house church, I think that's where I get that. Um, That's where that happens for me. Um, It's really, really hard for it to happen in a big setting like this. It obviously does happen sometimes, but not everybody... It's not always the right time to come to the microphone. Uh, it's not always something that it's even possible for you. I mean, there's many people who could never come up to do this, uh, or at least they, they wouldn't today. But in a small group where you get to know somebody and they become your family almost, um, where you genuinely understand that they care for you and that, uh, you know, that they're going to be there for you, confession becomes something that can be a freeing experience, even talking to someone else about your shortcomings, about your failures. And uh, I would say that's something that I don't take advantage of enough. There's a lot of times where I come to house church or church, or even when I'm talking to other Christians that I know could be that person, that I worry still about how I'm going to look or how they're going to see me um, or what I think my uh, appearance is you know, even though I don't actually know what they think of me. Um, And I worry about damaging my credibility by saying something like that. And it's so strange. I was just talking about this this morning. But the more we get into the process of hiding our guilt and our sin, the more, like, entrenched and more kind of uh, force there is behind that. Uh, because we start building a a lie upon a lie or a deceit upon a deceit or this really complex, elaborate thing that we begin to uh, start to get lost in and we can't actually really see where we need to be. We can't really see who we are sometimes through that. 
until a point, and I don't know if you, I'm sure all of you have been there at some point or another, where you really, really exhaust every resource you have in trying to hide, and you get caught, um, or you just can't maintain that facade anymore, and you have to come clean. Um, I can remember a time like that in my life. Um, my parents are actually back here sitting next to my wife. Uh, but my dad has always been somebody that uh, is not afraid to ask, is there something that's going on? Is there something that you want to talk to me about? And that's unique because I, I think, you know, many parents are willing to say that. But when he said that, he actually really genuinely meant we can talk about this and we can discuss it without me getting so angry or uh, rejecting you or making you feel that, you know, like that, that you're less than. So when he asked me that, it is actually an invitation uh, that, I, that I could trust in. And I think that's important because that's how God is too. Uh, he's not asking you to confess so that he can nail you. He's asking you to confess so that he can forgive you. Um, and that's a huge, hugely important thing to understand because for a long time, I thought confessing was admitting to guilt. God already knows you're guilty. It's, confessing is not for God. It's not for God. It's for us. It's for changing our heart and making us willing to humble ourselves before God and ask for forgiveness. Um, but I can remember this time uh, we were in church, and my dad just turned over to me, and he said, let's go outside. I want to talk with you. And I was about 16 or so, and a hot shot, just started driving. Um, I had a girlfriend, and she and I were getting into a situation that was not healthy for me, um, and that was filled with sin, and the product of that was a lot of shame. And I knew what I was doing was wrong, and I was stuck in it, and the more I got stuck in it, the more I couldn't see a way out. Um, the more lies I told, the more I tried to tell myself I was okay. And, but it was interesting because my dad said, hey, I want you to just come outside to the parking lot with me. I want to talk with you. And he said, I just feel like something's not right. And I feel like you need to tell me what's really happening, what's really going on. And I don't even remember what I said. I don't know if I said the whole truth or I don't know if I, you know, uh, you know, said half the truth or whatever, but it started a process by which the whole truth became revealed. And the first thing I remember thinking about this was, this is a disaster. This is absolutely a disaster. And yet I was so relieved. I was so relieved. I had this off my chest. I was, you know, there wasn't anything to hide anymore. It's like the worst that could happen has happened. And as that progressed, what ended up happening was, what I thought was a hopeless situation or a situation I could never exit or get out of, I got out of it with the help of my parents and with their prayer and with many other interventions. And I found myself weeks later just thinking about how lucky I was that my dad said, come out to the parking lot, I wanna to talk to you. And that was like the first time, I think right about that time where I realized like my parents have value uh, they have, you know, they are, they are more intelligent than me. They may actually be able to help me with problems that I think I can only handle on my own. They may know better, a better way than I do, even when I don't see a way. And I'd say that same thing has happened in the last couple years in my relationship with God, partly through 
just coming fully clean. And it's happened in my marriage too, same thing. Coming fully clean, just like saying actually what's on your heart, what your struggle is, and then not being rejected. That's the, that's the second part of that. It's coming fully clean and then not being rejected. And what that does takes you right back to what David's saying in Psalms 32. When he's come clean, he has a refuge in the Lord, a hiding place. He's been protected from trouble. There's victory songs being sung around him. And the way forward is being shown to him by God. And again, like, if you think about that, I'm sitting there in this situation thinking, there is no way forward. I just have to keep doing what I'm doing and keep trying to just keep this under wraps. And instantly, in one moment, a series of events happens, and I realize there is so many other possibilities, things I just couldn't understand at that time. And part of me wants to say, well, that's just because I was immature. But the same thing still happens right now, today, where I think there is only one way. There's never just one way with God. There's always another way, a better way, His way. And when we are confessing that we're trying to take control and that we're in charge, when we're, you know, or we're, that we're not in charge anymore, uh, and we turn that over to Him, He is able to, um, to forgive us, to protect us, and to show us a new way. I'm going to just conclude here um, with a few thoughts. Um, and I never even got to what James says, but I'll just add that in here. There's healing in being transparent with a group of people and even a person. And we all, as Christians, have to have that. As a part of being discipled or even discipling somebody is getting into a real relationship without boundaries where you are saying what's in your mind and they are encouraging you, comforting you, and praying for you. Or vice versa, maybe you're doing that for someone else. But you have to be doing that to really be growing as a Christian and to growing other Christians and to really living out the gospel. So confession is needed, not just when we are born again, but as a regular practice in our daily Christian walk, not to obtain forgiveness from sins we have already been forgiven, but to acknowledge to God and ourselves and others that we are still in need of God's grace and transforming of our hearts and minds to the image of Christ. It's a recognition that we need to change to repent of rebellion, disobedience, and sin. If we confess our sins openly, without hiding, minimizing, rationalizing, we can expect from God forgiveness and we can expect to have freedom and peace. True confession leads to repentance, and true repentance leads to change. And as we change, I feel like the second I change, it reveals a new thing that I need to confess and repent and change of. And that process just repeats. And every time I'm inching a little bit closer, I think, to what God wants for me, to living like Christ. And this is maybe, maybe the most sobering part of all this is that there's a limited time to do this. Like, we don't have forever to decide to confess. And there have been times in my life where I've just held on to what I have, and I've said, I'll worry about that tomorrow. I'll confess that tomorrow. I'll, I'll say whatever I need to say tomorrow. Maybe when I'm an adult, I'll be a better Christian. Maybe when I'm, 
you know, a grandparent, I'll be a better Christian, or something. I keep pushing down the road the need to confess, thinking that I've got time. It's false. You don't have time. You don't know how much time you have. And it's something that is so important. Without it, you're not assured of your salvation. And with it, though, you are assured. You can go to bed at night, and you can think, if I don't wake up tomorrow morning, it's because I'm with Christ. And that's a thought that for a lot of my life, even as I would say I was a Christian, I did not have that assurance in my mind. I do have that assurance now, though. I'm, I'm sure that if I were to die tonight, that I'd wake up and be with Christ. Out of a position of understanding that I have no ability to achieve that on my own. Zero. Uh, if we confess our sins to each other, it can be helpful. It can help in healing. It can let people know where you're at. Let them pray for you. And if we've wronged someone else, um, we should go to them. We should reconcile with them. Even before we go to offer our sacrifice at the temple, um, in Matthew 5, 23, 24, it says if you're going to go take something to the altar, and that used to, I think, mean bring you know, something to the priests, but I've also been called to the altar at church or somewhere else. But before you go for communion, for these other things, it's a great time to realize if you've wronged somebody, if there's an outstanding debt that you have, if there's something that needs to be reconciled. And it doesn't require them forgiving you, but it requires in your heart confessing, repenting, and changing um, and, and talking with others about that. So those are kind of the things that I'd like you to take away from today. Confession is something needed for salvation, but it's also needed for our Christian walk every day. And I'm going to just pray for us. Um, and it's my genuine hope that we leave here today thinking about how can we confess to our brother or sister, or if we've never confessed our sin before, that we can do it today. And like I said, you can find me. I'll be happy to talk with you about that. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for giving us your word so that we don't have to walk blindly and not know the right things to do, the right things to say. But even when we don't know the right things to do and right things to say, we praise you for sending the Holy Spirit who intercedes on our behalf and prays for us constantly and wants us to draw closer to you. So, Father, I just pray that we will be open to that still small voice, to that prompting today, um, that if we aren't in relationship with you, that you will bring our hearts to a point where we want to be, and that if we are, that you will prompt us to remember that we need your grace and that we need change in our life continually, and that because of your sacrifice and sending your only son to die on the cross to be our perfect um, sacrifice, that we will be motivated um, fully to turn our lives over to you, to confess to you that we aren't sufficient in ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray.